Blog Talk Radio. everybody. Welcome to a way too early show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I think we may have had an issue where the show started like a little bit earlier than it was supposed to in terms of it was supposed to start at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. It may have started a little sooner. I don't know. Um, Blog Talk Radio has uh, time problems relatively often. Let me crack open some big seltzer in this bitch. Mm. So, um, it's been a hell week, and we're going to talk about all of it. Now, I will get to the Ilhan Omar, Donald Trump thing in just a little bit, and I have Republicans scrambling to defend Trump in the most grotesque ways. But, first and foremost, we're going to talk about... um, 
Joe Biden's health care plan and why the Democrats cannot go with Biden. He cannot get through the primary because then we're in trouble. And also, um, Rand Paul does something that uh, is basically as low as it gets, and it's just it's just damn near evil is what it is. So we'll talk about that, and uh, we have much, much more. <clears throat> All right, let's get started. So Joe Biden has come out and said that um, his health care plan would cover of all Americans, and um, he's basically bragging about that. He's he's saying it like it's a a good thing. I mean, I made fun of John Hickenlooper because Hickenlooper brags that when he was governor of Colorado, or as governor of Colorado, he, um, you know, he achieved near universal health coverage. Now, I want you to reflect on that for a second, because What that means is, fundamentally, you're bragging about not getting everybody covered. Just try to take yourself out of the context of the United States for a second and think if you're uh, somebody living in any other developed country and you have a politician bragging, we have near universal coverage. That means that plenty of people don't have coverage, which means those people are subject to medical bankruptcies. Those people are subject to, you know, perhaps... They can't go to the doctor at all because it's not easily accessible to them, and then a a problem spirals out and gets way worse, and then they could die. So the idea of bragging about near-universal coverage is, to me, both tragic and insanely comical. Um, And this is what Joe Biden did. So he said 97% of all Americans would be covered by his plan. Now, his plan is basically an extension of Obamacare. It depends what day you catch him. Some days he says, oh, it's just an extension of Obamacare. And the implication is you still have, like, oh, just bring back the individual mandate and make some other tweaks, and then we're good. Um, and then on his good days, he goes all the way to public option. So we go, um, you know, slight tweak around the edges, but we keep the for-profit health insurance companies in control, bring back the individual mandate. That's the bad days. The good days is, okay, public option. Um, so he's all over the place, but that's the spectrum of what he says when he talks about his plan. But um, by saying 97% of all Americans would be covered, that means 3% wouldn't have coverage. Well, guess what? Common Dreams uh, is reporting on a new study that was just released on his plan. Take a look. Not acceptable. Analysis estimates Biden healthcare plan would kill 125,000 people in first decade alone. As Biden vows to, quote, do everything in my power to defend system based on for-profit insurance industry, People's Policy Project shows death toll would be equivalent of 42 September 11-style attack. So Matt Brunig of the left-wing think tank, the People's Policy Project, said the following, One commonly used estimate states that one unnecessary death occurs annually for every 830 uninsured people. This means that during the first 10 years of Biden care, over 125,000 unnecessary deaths will occur from uninsurance. Now, by the way, if you say, well, I don't know, I, I don't think I agree with that analysis because I'm more centrist. Okay, well, um, you know who does agree with this analysis and has used that one death for every 830 uninsured people? Cap. 
the Center for American Progress. Basically, the epicenter of centrist Democrat thought. So even they agree to that number, and all Matt Bruning had had to do was the math. Okay, let's see. How many people, 3% of of the country uninsured, this is under his best-case scenario, so we're using his best-case scenario that he gave us, 3% uninsured, that's X number of people uninsured, you do the math on it and extrapolate out for 10 years, and we have 125,000 people dead in the first decade alone. See, this is, this is the reality of what happens when you don't have a system which protects basic human dignity. You do have death as a result of it. You do have a broken, disgusting, rot, rotting system. We haven't even gotten into costs. Obviously, under Biden's systems, you know, there would be a staggeringly high cost to medical care, and we would not catch up to the rest of the industrialized world. But putting costs aside, I mean, this is still, on its merits, incomprehensibly bad. And that's what's so offensive about centrist Democrats, corporate Democrats, is that Really what they are is people who just want to slightly tweak the status quo in your favor. Okay, so fewer people would die under Biden care versus the current system, but still 125,000 people die in the first decade. So that's not you can't you can't really form a coherent argument in favor of this position. You just can't do it. And even if you say, well, no, he's just a he's just taking into account real politics of how it functions, and he knows that this is probably the best we could do, so that's all we're going to get. Well, no, as I've explained to you guys a million times, forget the policy. Even on the politics, Joe Biden and the other um, centrist Democrats are wrong. Because, you know, if you've ever negotiated for a, a price to lease a car or purchase a car, you know the deal. You don't go in already agreeing with them. You don't go in already with a half measure. You rep your position. So for Democrats, what they should be doing is repping an NHS-style single-payer health care system. And then maybe you compromise all the way to a Canadian-style single-payer system. But he goes in up front with giant concessions because he actually believes in this centrist garbage, probably also because he takes a lot of money from a lot of rich people who, you know, leech off this system, for-profit health insurance companies and the like. But... You, what you have to do is go in and say, my position is this left-wing position, the actual left-wing position, fine, you want to negotiate, we, we meet on a Canadian-style single-payer system, but he's not doing that. He goes in hawking the Heritage Foundation plan, hawking a very cent- centrist plan, and then he'll ultimately get bupkis. Remember, this is also the guy who says, oh, We need a president who can persuade people. You were in the White House with Obama. Did you not see that McConnell and his merry band of vicious dipshits had no interest in that? I mean, they were accusing him of being, certainly Donald Trump was and many others, oh, Obama's not even American. He was born in Kenya. And they broke the filibuster record. And you think you're going to convince these people? I mean, honestly... That's bordering on delusional at this point. 
So, no, the way you break them politically, you have to fight them head on. Use the bully pulpit and the power of the people against them. And you use that to make your whole caucus fall in line. So even blue dog Democrats support a Medicare for all system. And you use that to fundamentally break maybe two or three Republicans who are from very blue states. So, but you have to use the bully pulpit. FDR knew how to do that. Uh, even Lyndon B. Johnson, to an extent, knew how to do that. But every modern Democrat, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and, and the people who rep that neoliberal centrist philosophy, they don't, either don't know how to do that or they really don't believe in those left-wing positions. So they go into it shooting themselves in the foot up front. And I think it's both. I think they don't want those left-wing positions anyway. But also, even if they did, they wouldn't know how to get them by doing the proper strategy. So anyway, 125,000 deaths. So I just want everybody to understand, if you support Joe Biden in the primary, this is what you're signing on to. It's a package deal. You can't say, well, I support Biden, but I'm not cool with 125,000 deaths over 10 years because of his shitty health care plan. Even giving him best case scenario with his own numbers. But you need to digest that. You need to understand that because this is the reality. Supporting Biden means supporting 125,000 deaths over a decade from lack of health care. Okay, Rand Paul. So Rand Paul blocked something in the Senate here that's honestly going to leave you speechless. So let's take a look and then we'll talk about it.
So there was a bill that passed a long time ago to basically fund the health care for the 9-11 first responders who had significant health problems because when they responded to the terror attack, to the tragedy, they were breathing in that toxic dust from when the buildings collapsed. So a lot of these people died from cancer, died from severe respiratory issues, and um, a lot of them, it, it took some, there's like a latency period where some of them got sick relatively quickly, and then others, it was much later on that they got sick. Um, but there was a sunset provision on, on the funding. And so today, it ran out. Not like literally today, but recently it ran out. And so John Stewart recently went and spoke to Congress and basically shamed them and said, like, what the hell is wrong with you people? You have to fund this. What are you, crazy? Are all of you, like, this loathsome and immoral? And, of course, that blew up. We covered it on this show, and it, it went everywhere. Every outlet covered it. And um, that political pressure broke Washington. And so in the House of Representatives, the bill to fund health care for 9-11 first responders, it cleared 402 to 12. Last week, it passed the House of Representatives 402 to 12. Let me explain something to you. Nothing, nothing, nothing in Washington, D.C. is that unanimous. Nothing. 402 to 12? You couldn't get 402 people in Congress to agree that the sky is blue and the grass is green. It's not going to happen. But they did for this because of the massive, massive, massive political pressure, and because it's obviously the right thing to do, it's political suicide if you don't do the right thing on this. Rand Paul just blocked it. And what was his reasoning? You heard it right there. I'm really concerned about the debt and the deficit. Health care for 9-11 first responders. What happened to never forget? Rand Paul himself has tweeted, never forget. Tweeted about 9-11 on the anniversary of 9-11 and made the same stock points that everybody else makes who's in elected office on that day, where it's all the symbolism. And then now, when he thought nobody's watching, because he's a dumbass, he blocks it. And then afterwards, by the way, he's scrambling because holy hell rains down on him, and he's trending on Twitter, and everybody hates him. He's like, I did, bro, I didn't even block it. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't even block it, bro. All right? All I'm saying is we've got to pay for it. You just blocked it, though. You, yes, that is your argument is, oh, we should pay for it by cutting, uh, you know, cutting spending elsewhere. That is your argument, but you did block it. That's just an objective fact. It, we just saw it. You blocked it. 402 to 12, and you blocked it. That's what you did. Now, let me ask you a question. How much do you think this could possibly be? I actually don't have the number in front of me. But what, a couple hundred million dollars, maybe? Maybe a billion for the funding for 9-11 first responders? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. In, in terms of Washington, D.C., absolute peanuts. Absolute peanuts. He's so concerned about the deficit, but he voted for the Republican tax cut package. It was tax cuts for corporations and the mega-rich, 
that bill added over a trillion dollars to the deficit. Didn't have a peep about the debt or the deficit back then. Nothing. Nothing at all. Oh, did I just add over a trillion dollars to the deficit by giving corporations and the mega-rich a tax cut? I care so much about the debt and the deficit. I'm a fiscal conservative. Oh, yes. <laughs> over a trillion dollars added to the deficit for that. For that. Again, what would this cost? A couple hundred million, maybe a billion? And he goes, no, we have to cut spending elsewhere. That's what we have to do. Weird. You're more concerned about it for health care for first responders to 9-11, and it would cost much less than you were when it came to tax cuts for the mega-rich. Almost like you're totally full of shit. God, it's so unbearable. And just to be clear, this is like the quintessential example, the perfect the epitome of all they care about is when it's for you bringing up that argument. When the thing in question is for regular people, that's when they slam on the brake and go, well, have you all thought of the cost? Have you thought of the price tag? Is this going to add to the deficit? It's their stock argument to just gaslight everybody and block progress, any progress that would help regular people. That's all they got. Doesn't matter how, it could be the most obvious thing ever. I mean, listen, there, it is the most obvious thing ever when you talk about health care for people and talk about education for people. They're like, oh yeah, you want to like make sure people don't die from lack of health care? Well, sir, have you thought about the price tag? They trot that out for everything. But when it came to tax cuts for the rich, tax cuts for corporations, they were like, price? Deficit? Deficit? Bitch, we talking about ADD? What does deficit mean? I don't even know what deficit means, bro. <laughs> it's so gross. It's so gross. But thankfully, everybody's on to me. Like I said, he trends on Twitter. Everybody opened the bowels of hell on him. Rightfully so. Because this is bullshit. You added over a trillion dollars to the deficit with your shitty tax cut bill for the rich. And now, when you have a much, 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 much less expensive bill just to give first responders health care, you block it and gaslight everybody and concern troll about the cost. I mean, this is seriously the functional equivalent of, like, stop and think about this. A parent has a sick child. And the child has a medical emergency. And you take the child to the hospital. And the parents are having a conversation. And one of the parents goes, well, maybe we should hold off on this because have you thought about the cost? It might add to our our debt. Everybody be like, what? It's, your, it's a sick child. What is wrong with you? That's that perfect analogy here because we're talking about 9-11 first responders, the heroes who showed up when there was a terror attack against the United States and risked their lives. Many of them died. And Rand Paul concern trolls about the cost 
to give them health care. Rand, do us a favor. Stick to fighting against wars, because that's all you're good at. Okay. All right. Uh, Representative James Comer of Kentucky is a guy who, who you have never heard of until today. I didn't know him either until yesterday. But um, let, me, let me show this to you because you'll get a good laugh out of it. So Representative James Comer of Kentucky was grilled by a CNN host here. And without even really trying, the CNN host exposes the deep hypocrisy of the right when it comes to Ilhan Omar and AOC. Um, So, I mean, this speaks for itself. You'll see Comer gets caught in a logic chokehold and then his brain malfunctions. president say, you should leave this country, in effect, if you disagree with my view of it. You must hate this country and, to be fair, falsely claim that they're pro-terrorist. There's nothing in the comments there that supports the president's attack on them. Is that a vision of America uh, that, that you support? What I think the president was trying to apply is if, if you're not proud of America, if you uh, do not want to stand when the national anthem's being played, uh, if you're ashamed of uh, the way that our, our country is operated, you're more than welcome to, to leave the country. Are they anything for, racist for about that? The president? So the president said in a 2017 interview, when, when he was confronted about Vladimir Putin, he compared the U.S. to Russia. This was with Bill O'Reilly. Uh, Bill O'Reilly said Putin is a killer. The president said, I'm quoting him, there are lots of killers. We have a lot of killers. Will you think our country is so innocent? That's, that's the sitting president of the United States comparing America to, to, to an authoritarian uh, country, Russia, that's criticism. Does he hate America uh, for making that comment? I, I don't think that uh, anyone in America would agree with 100% of what President Trump says. I don't think anyone in America would agree with 100% of what any of the Democrats say. The, the bottom line is the, the root of this interview is about is the president a racist, and just last week, Ocasio-Cortez implied that Nancy Pelosi was a racist. I don't think Nancy Pelosi's a racist, nor do I think that Donald Trump's a racist. I think that I do not take the comments as being racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think basically yeah. saying if you, if, if you think there are other countries, and, and if you sit in the committee, I'm on several committees with, uh, with all four of the members of the so-called squad, and they're constantly complaining about America. And that's one big difference between conservatives. We're proud of America. We want to improve America. And they're, they're, making, they're, making dis- they're, they're expressing disagreements with, with policies. That's different from, is that not different from complaining about the country? I mean, this is a president who was elected. He, he made many very public criticisms of the way he saw America today. I mean, that, that was his essential message in 2016. Can't you and others make a distinction between criticizing uh, the situation in the country from somehow saying you dislike the country or hate the country? I mean, this is the nature of politics for 230-some-odd years. I honestly do not think that the tweets were racist. I think that uh, the media has, has overblown the tweets. 
what happened to your brain? <laughs> that was just a total malfunction. No, it, they have no response. And, and the crazy thing is, he didn't need, like he never thought about that. That never occurred to him until that point was made right in front of his face. Never occurred to him before. So he said repeatedly, well, you know, hey, if you're not proud of the U.S., if you don't stand for the national anthem, if you don't like the way the country functions, if you're constantly complaining about America, why don't you get out? And uh, the CNN host Jim Skudo was like, but wait, that's Trump ran on Make America Great Again. To make it great again means he doesn't think it's great now. So fundamentally, what he's saying is, hey, I don't like the way the country functions. The same thing that you're saying they say is what he says, too. So what do you mean? And he's like, well, yeah, but the main point of this interview was, is Donald Trump a racist? And I'm saying no. (laughs) So in other words, check and mate. And my brain will now malfunction and just go back to the thing we were talking about before because I have no response at all. It's not even that I don't have a good response and that my response is terrible. It's I have no response. So my brain was like, take self out of current position and change subject and move back to something else. That's what happened. By the way, so I made this point. I'm going to pat myself on the back way too hard here. But the first point I made was this, in the wake of this whole Trump tweeting insane, bigoted stuff at Ilhan Omar and about Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ayanna Presley, and I, tweet, I tagged on Twitter Donald Trump and Ilhan Omar, and then when Ilhan Omar, later that same day, went out and gave a speech on it, she said exactly what I had said, which is, this president always talks about making America great again. So he's criticizing it, and the idea is to make it better. That's what we are doing, but somehow we're accused of being un-American when we do it. So, uh, you know, listen, it's very, very, very possible that she, she thought of that and that other people who were watching this clown show immediately thought of that when they were watching it. But I like to think that maybe I influenced people. <laughs> and they heard me say it, and they're like, oh, shit, that's a really good point, and then they ran with it. But either way, it doesn't matter because it's true. It's correct. It's totally true. And now even the CNN host, and CNN is usually abysmal and they're terrible, and this same CNN host went on in a different clip to go after Bernie's campaign manager and pretend like Medicare for All isn't popular and he's totally wrong about that. Um, so not, not like, oh, this CNN host is good, but on this point, he did a great job. He did a great job because he was just bringing up the obvious. He's like, hold on. And, and this, this is how you know the whole conversation is disingenuous. Like, the, uh, the Republicans on this issue are just so beyond the pale that on some level you have to think they even know that they're being dishonest. Because it, how do you, that's an inescapable truth, that Donald Trump criticized America. He was the anti-Reagan. Reagan ran on, you know, morning in America. Oh, my God, America is so wonderful in every way. And then Trump comes along and says, yeah, everything's terrible, wrong, bad, make America great again, because our cities are disgusting, and they're, they're doing terrible, not doing good in this country, we need to rebuild this country. So the whole thing was like, and by the way, I gave him credit for that, because I thought it was very, 
it, it was smart populist politics to talk, hey, there's, things are messed up and we got to fix them. That's smart populist politics. It, it acknowledges that we have a lot of problems. But again, when he does it, he thinks, oh, what do you mean? Oh, this is totally great. This is totally fine. When women of color do it, it's, oh, you don't like America? Why don't you leave? And by the way, that, that's the core of this too, which is to act like this is not a bigoted attack from Trump. I mean, seriously, he's telling American congresswomen, three of the four were born in America. The one who wasn't born in America is incredibly American and has lived the American dream. She went from a refugee camp to Congress through hard work and dedication and passion. Okay, and did, what do they say? They, they act like she's un-American and she should leave the country. And she should leave the country for criticizing the country when that's what they do. So notice, and I guarantee you on this point, he has never once, and none of the Republicans have, have ever once told a white guy, if you don't like the country, you can leave it. Why don't you go back to where you came from? They never said that. Why? Because in their mind, well, if they're white, that's pretty American. So what am I going to do? Am I going to tell Bill Clinton to go back to where he came from? They despised Bill Clinton. Despised him. And they did nothing but make arguments against him all day long. But they never said, you should probably go back to your country. You should probably go back to where you came from. Where are your ancestors from, big guy, huh? What are they, from England? You should probably go back to England. They would never say that. Because you get the benefit of the doubt if you're white. Because they, they'll think like, well, yeah, I may hate the guy and disagree with the guy, but I mean, he's American. But when it's women of color, I mean, keep it real, that's when they trot out these deeply nativist and bigoted arguments. And if you can't see that, ah, man, is that, it's like you're being purposefully dense. Because I am one of the last people to bring up this issue, to say, oh, you know, we got to look at this through the racial lens. Because I, I love to have, like, overwhelming evidence when I come to that conclusion. In this example, I see no other explanation. No other explanation at all. Telling American congresswomen to go back to where they came from. And this is Trump and all the, the far-right people that go to his rallies and stuff used to act like, oh, no, we're only against illegal immigration. That's all we're against. Well, that morphed rather quickly to U.S. congresswomen who are U.S. citizens, three of the four born in the United States, and again, the one who isn't is still American. So it went from illegal immigrants to legal immigrants to, ah, eh, fuck it. You disagree with me politically. You have dark skin, so you should leave. And also... The free speech people. Trump was just talking about last week at his social media summit. We believe in free speech. Unbelievable. Believe me. What we need is we need to protect freedom of speech in this country. So you have U.S. congresswomen who criticize this country and you say you should leave? That is fundamentally the opposite of freedom of speech. So basically, if you're a person of color and a woman of color, you need to only blow America all day long and talk about how wonderful America is all day long. All day long. Or else you're un-American and you're anti-American and you should go back to where you came from. If you believe in free speech, it would never occur to you ever to tell somebody for disagreeing with you politically and criticizing the country that they should probably leave the country. So 
so yeah, there is a strong, strong line of bigotry that goes back through all this stuff. Um, and as you can tell, when you catch them in that massive hypocrisy of Trump always criticized America and you love it, they have no answer. So their brains malfunction. Let's have more of the right-wing meltdown. So Representative Sean Duffy had a meltdown on the House floor defending President Trump. There is so much of this to pick apart, and we're going to do exactly that. I want to note, Mr. Speaker, that I've looked closely at the, the chain of three tweets sent out by President Trump. And in those tweets, I see nothing that references anybody's race. Not a thing. I don't see anyone's name being referenced in the tweets. But the president's referring to people, congresswomen, who are anti-American. And lo and behold, everybody in this chamber knows who he's talking about. Who are the anti-American members of Congress? He didn't say their names. He did not say their race. But he commented on what they view, uh, how they view America. And we all know who he's talking about. I want immigrants to come to this country. But if you come to this country, shouldn't you love this country? We all come here and see imperfection. And we work every week trying to make our country better. But to say I wholeheartedly uh, 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 dislike the country, the fact that I'm going to call the president an MFR, um, good Lord, what has the institution become? And then to come to this floor and chastise the president for a couple of tweets when that's the language you use against him, that is rich. Mr. Speaker, that that's the language that the left would use, and then try to call out the president who didn't cite a race or he didn't cite a name. I I look at this, and I think we are all called to do better and be better. We should make this country better. But when I look at some who say, I believe that socialism is a pure form of government and a better uh, economic um, uh, economy uh, over capitalism that has given us the freest most generous, most prosperous country that's ever existed on the face of the earth. So we want, to, we want to trade this in for a system that has always failed. I think you're going to see uh, Republicans push back against that, and I think many Democrats will push back against that. And I think that's what this argument really comes down to. And I'm going to one other note. I look at some of my conservative colleagues, whether it's Candace Owen, Diamond and Silk, um, Justice Thomas, who are... Si- I feel bad. The, the gentleman from New York has recognized Mr. Nadler. Let me, before you go, let me let me again say, uh, please direct your comments to the chair. Mr. Speaker, I have a parliamentary inquiry. Woman will state a parliamentary inquiry. My inquiry is this: my colleague across the aisle just referred to members of Congress as anti-American. I believe that those words are defamatory. There's almost, like, what do you say in response to somebody who's so unhinged and makes so little sense, like Sean Duffy there? That's his name, right? Yeah, Sean Duffy. 
I mean, let's go through some of his nonsense. He says, I see nothing about race in the tweets. I see nothing about race in the tweets. He's telling American congresswomen to go back to their country, go back to where they came from. Do I need to walk you through why that's a giant problem? U.S. congresswomen, three of four born here, one not, but was a refugee and worked her way all the way to Congress, this little thing called the American Dream. Do I need to walk you through why that's a problem? All of the criticisms that these guys have for people who are nominally on the left, but they've never, ever, 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 ever said about a white dude, go back to your country. Go back to where you came from. But weird, for some reason, when it's four women of color, that's the first argument that comes out. Why don't you just go back to where you came from? They're American. They're American. I didn't, he didn't say anything about race. He didn't say anything about race. He didn't call Ilhan the N-word. So, uh, come on, bro. Why are you guys being so ridiculous and saying that this president's a bigot? I mean, again, I don't know. Are they really this stupid? Or are they just, like, they know, hey, I'm just going to play defense for my team and use whatever silly-ass arguments I can come up with. I mean, this is really disingenuous. And then um, he says, I, I also love how they just go right to, like, they don't have arguments. They just have buzzwords that give people who are on their side a Pavlovian response. So if you'll notice, how often have you heard this where they go, socialism? Like, they don't, they don't need to say anything. They just break, say that one word, socialism, and then everybody on the side goes, socialism. <laughs> it's, like, it's like there's this understanding of like, I'm not going to fill in the blanks. I'm not actually going to make a coherent point, a cogent argument. I'm just going to say socialism. And then you're supposed to go. <laughs> what now, Lefty? None of the people who you're talking about have ever taken that label ever. You want to know why? Because they're not socialists. Much to the chagrin of many socialists. You know what they are? They're social democrats. Some have embraced the level democratic socialist, but that's fundamentally different from socialism. And also, when you look at their politics and the policies they fight for, standard social democracy, like Sweden, like Norway, not like the old school Soviet Union, not like Cuba, not like Venezuela or whatever goofy ass countries these people would bring up is like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, Venezuela, so you want to be in Venezuela? <laughs> See, again, that's, that's the thing. No arguments. Just buzzwords, and that's enough for them. Socialist. Venezuela. By the way, I love how so many people on the right say, all the people on the left just want to name call and then get away with it. And then what do they do? Socialist. Anti-American. That's the other one. Anti-American. You're just anti-American. You just hate America. That's what you hate America. It's not that you're proposing policies that you think will fix this country and make it better. It's that you hate this country and you're trying to take this country down. That's what I think. I'm not a bigot. I'm not a bigot for saying that. Am I a bigot? I'm not a bigot. That's so stupid. Uh, uh. And I like how shocked Pramila Jayapal was there. Um, she was like, did, did you just say that U.S. congresswomen are anti-American? 
and you think like that's see they say it like it's obvious like obviously it's not like they want to fix the country and propose policies that we know work in other developed countries that they hate america all right and then um finally he referenced he referenced candace owens diamond and silk and justice thomas in congress hmm i wonder why for those of you who don't know, and all of you know, it, this is the tap dance that they do when they get caught stone cold saying something incredibly bigoted. Is I have black friends. <laughs> That's what this is. Candace Owens, uh, listen. Candace Owens, Diamond and Silk, Justice Thomas. Yes, those intellectual powerhouses of Candace Owens and Diamond and Silk and the guy who hasn't spoken a word on the Supreme Court in about 712 years. I mean, by the way, congrats to Diamond and Silk and Candace Owens. Congrats. Because your whole, your whole grift, this is what it boils down to. The president just told American, U.S. Congresswomen, Americans, to go back to their country, and you're trotted out as a defense. Oh, yeah, if we're so bigoted, why do I like Candace Owens? <laughs> bro, if I'm a bigot, why do I agree with everything Jesse Lee Peterson says, bro? Why do I agree with Jesse Lee Peterson that Jim Crow is awesome? <laughs> I'm a bigot. I'm just agreeing with Jesse Lee Peterson when he says <laughs> Jim Crow is better for black people. What do you mean? What do you mean, man? Ugh. I feel like I need to take a shower when I watch these far-right-wingers scrambling to defend Trump. They won't even state the obvious. They won't even say, yeah, you know what? You went too far. And obviously when U.S. Congresswomen criticize America, it's because they're trying to improve it. There's an old quote, dissent is the highest form of patriotism. I'm not sure who said it, but I'm pretty sure it was one of the founding fathers, maybe Thomas Jefferson. But now the argument is, oh, we get to criticize it all day long and say we can make America great again. But if women of color do it, well, you're anti-American. You should probably go back to where you came from. Disgusting. Okay. Let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, I got Liz Cheney gave a very dumb but also pretty funny uh, speech about this uh, Trump feud. And then we'll go to um, CNN interviewing uh, female Trump supporters, which is hilarious. We got Kamala Harris on Medicare for All. We got Mike Ravel. There's a lot in today's show. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back, bitch.
Alright, bitch. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back. Welcome back. Alright. The Cheneys are back at it. Well, Liz Cheney's back at it, but she no doubt has, um... The spirit of her father is strongly in her. And I mean that in the worst possible way. Okay. So Liz Cheney uh, came out and gave a speech. This is basically a response to Donald Trump viciously going after Ilhan Omar and AOC and the Justice Democrats. Let's take a look at what Cheney had to say. that this is the greatest nation that has ever existed, the exceptional nation, and they're wrong when they fail to recognize that no people has ever lived in greater freedom. And then they go on and fail to provide the resources our men and women in uniform need to defend that freedom. Our colleagues, our socialist colleagues on the other side of the aisle are wrong when they advocate abortion up until the moment of birth, including partial term abortion, partial birth abortion, late term abortion, and when they refuse to mandate care for babies who are born alive. Our colleagues are wrong when they say that we should open America's borders, abolish ICE, and abolish DHS. They're wrong when they advocate policies that would eliminate all private health insurance in this country, destroy Medicare, and force the American people to pay for free health care, including partial term abortion, partial birth abortion, late term abortion, and when they refuse to mandate care for babies who are born alive. Our colleagues are wrong when they say that we should open America's borders, abolish ICE, and abolish DHS. They're wrong when they advocate policies that would eliminate all private health insurance in this country, destroy Medicare, and force the American people to pay for free health care for illegal immigrants. They're wrong when they pursue policies like the one we're going to be voting on today that will destroy 4 million jobs for low-wage earners by mandating a federal $15 minimum wage. That is not compassion. That's the callousness that's born of ignorance. Health insurance in this country destroy Medicare and force the American people to pay for free health care for illegal immigrants. They're wrong when they pursue policies like the one we're going to be voting on today that will destroy 4 million jobs for low-wage earners by mandating a federal $15 minimum wage. That is not compassion. That's a callousness that's born of ignorance. They're wrong when they say that their programs help people at the lower end of the economic spectrum. Every one of their socialist programs would create massive new government dependency and end the very economic growth we need to ensure everyone can prosper. Our colleagues are wrong when they advocate packing the Supreme Court and abolishing the Electoral College. And our colleagues are wrong when they tell Americans, as Congresswoman Presley did just last weekend, that any individual seat at the table is only valuable, only legitimate, if that person espouses some pre-approved set of beliefs deemed appropriate based on their religion or their gender or their race. When they say that, that is racist. So, no, our opposition to our colleagues' beliefs has absolutely nothing to do with race or gender or religion. We oppose them and their policies because their policies are dangerous and wrong and would destroy America. (laughs) Okay, where do I begin with this one? The whole conversation was about Trump's tweets where he told 
U.S. congresswomen to go back to their country, to go back to where they came from. So, yes, that has a lot to do with race, with religion. Now, what Liz Cheney's trying to do here is the adult version and put the spin on it and say, no, 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 no. Our problem is not with, uh, you know, their skin color and their religion. Our problem is with their policies. Okay, but your take on their policies is also complete and utter bullshit. (laughs) And I'm about to break down how you're either very stupid or very dishonest. But uh, let's take them at their word that, well, a lot of our objection to them happens to be with their policies. Okay, fair enough. And I'm about to break that down. But what Trump said was not just about policy. That's crystal clear. So she's trying to put the spin on it, but she has to work overtime here because there's not enough spin in the world to deflect from the fact that he told U.S. Congresswomen to go back to their country. Not only because they're on the left, but yes, also because of what I, these people all hate Bill Clinton. They hate anybody who's nominally on the left, but they've never told them to go back to their country. Because in Trump's mind, that means like, oh, yeah, I disagree with the guy and I hate the guy, but I mean, he's American. Why would I question that? But he did tell the first black president ever to go back to Kenya, and he did say he wasn't born in America. And when he proved it, he then said, let me see your college transcripts. So he does save a particular kind of criticism just for people of color. And if you can't see that, you're just, you're being dense on purpose. So it does have to do with that. It does. It does. It does. But now let's get to the other point. Because, yes, a lot of your objection is with their policies. But on that front, you're wrong. You're wrong. So from the top, first thing she says is, Dave, refuse to acknowledge this is the greatest nation that ever existed, ever. It's like every time they say stuff like that, I want to be like, citation needed. Citation needed. What does that mean? What do you mean? The best thing. See, here's what an adult would say. America is the best nation for me. I love America because I was born here and I was raised here, and everything about it is something that I appreciate. There's a lot here that I like. That's what an adult would say. Liz Cheney says, this is the greatest nation that has ever existed, as if that's a factual claim. What does that mean, Liz? You know, you can empirically measure a lot of this stuff, right? You know that, you know, our healthcare system is ranked 11th out of 11 when it comes to the developed countries in the world, right? And we can go on and on in the, the you know, myriad ways that we are lagging behind the rest of the developed world. Now, again, that doesn't mean that I don't like America. When I criticize America, I try to improve it. But I, I love this country, you know, but I also want to make it better. They have a childish view of uh, dealing with these things. Like, think about it. If a parent saw their kid doing crack and blowing dudes behind in Arby's next to the dumpster, you would criticize your kid and say, okay, we're going to get you help and you're going to stop doing this. Is it a fair response to say, you don't love your kid if you criticize them like that? No, it's ridiculous. The same thing for your country. If you criticize your country, you're trying to make it better. But she she frames it as, this is the greatest nation that has ever existed and they're against that. You're such a child. Um, then she, she argues against them by saying they failed to fund the military. They failed to give our men and women in uniform the tools that they need. Are you kidding me? The giant, massive, tremendous, colossal increase in military spending was not just about giving our men and women in uniform what they need. That is in 
imperialistic, bloated military budget, which keeps us waging a shadow war in Africa, bombing 12 different countries, some with drone strikes, some with actual boots on the ground. And the way that you portray that as like, what do you mean, bro? This is just about giving our men and women in uniform what they need. And they, they're not in favor of that. How ridiculous are you? That's beyond ridiculous. As if like what? Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley would like look at our soldiers and be like, I'm now going to take away your protective gear and send you out there into combat. Take off that bulletproof vest. This is my punishment because I'm anti-America and I'm anti-you. They have this caricature in their mind that it's so dumb. I don't know how anybody falls for this. Then they go to the old, and this it's actually not old. It's relatively recent smear. But they say, um, Democrats are for abortion after the babies are born alive. There's a word for that. There's two words for that. It's called infanticide, and it's called murder. Murder is illegal in the United States of America, everywhere in the United States of America. There is no place where they are murdering newborn babies. That's not a thing. That's not in the law. That's not something any Democrat has ever argued for. I got news for you. The only time we even do late-term abortion in this country is if the life of the mother is in danger or there's a fatal defect in the fetus and they're not going to make it anyway. That's the only time. The only time. But they fucking take stuff out of context. They use that, you know, those hack smear job fake um, videos from, I forget the guy's name, James O'Keefe. They use stuff like that. And they use like an out-of-context clip from a governor talking about abortion to try to pretend like, see, the left is for murdering newborn babies. The left is for murder. They're pro-murder. How stupid are you? I mean, come on, man. That is so hacky and so disingenuous. And they don't care. They don't care. Here's how much they care. To the point where Trump goes out there and says, Ilhan Omar is pro-Al-Qaeda. He doesn't care about the consequences. He doesn't care that he's putting her in danger. He doesn't care that that's not even remotely correct or anywhere near true. They don't care. They, uh, just, just say whatever, fucking verbal diarrhea, and, and, and pretend like we're making cogent arguments. Um, then they go to the old canard of, and they're for open borders. Do you even bother to want to learn the actual positions of your opponents? First of all, nobody is for open borders who's uh, an elected Democratic official. Period. Full stop. End of conversation. The furthest anybody goes is to say, hey, let's make it a civil offense, as opposed to what it is right now, which is a misdemeanor. Why? Because they want to stop the family separation. That's it. That's it. That's why. That's it. So when you hear the context, wow, that sounds a lot more reasonable than I thought it was, huh? Even if you disagree with it, that sounds a lot more reasonable than open borders, totally open borders. That's what they want. Well, no, they want it to be a civil offense and not a misdemeanor because with a civil offense, then there wouldn't be family separation. I mean, these, such, there's such hacks. I'm ripping apart every one of her shitty non-arguments, but she gave this speech as if, like, I'm going to be the substantive intelligent one in the Republican Party. Um, then she lies and says they're for eliminating all private health insurance. Not a single Medicare for All bill eliminates all private health insurance. You can still get supplemental 
private health insurance under uh, the Bernie Sanders bill, okay? Supplemental. Um, but yes, the default would be no more unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit, price-gouging middleman who gets in between you and your doctor and steals your money. That's correct, and that's a good thing. People don't love their private insurance company. They love their doctor, and they love their hospital, and they can keep their doctor and keep their hospital. Um, then she says, well, this – she actually frames this as if it's like a slam-dunk issue for her. She's like, and these are the same people who want to, quote, destroy millions of jobs with a living wage. So she casually comes out against, you know, paying people a living wage for a full-time job. And she frames it as, oh, it would lead to unemployment. Except we've studied, um, there's multiple states that have raised their minimum wage, and we've studied the impacts of it. And it most certainly does not lead to increased unemployment. Now, it's theoretically possible if you raise it too high that, yes, small businesses say, I can't afford it, so i got to lay some people off. That's theoretically possible. But in the states that have raised their uh, minimum wages, that hasn't happened because they raise them in a reasonable, responsible way, and they raise it to a level that's not something that you know, these businesses can't afford. So she's, what she's arguing for is, hey, you should be able to work a full-time job and not make enough money to survive. And she thinks, like, she's got the duh position on this. I'm pretty sure that's what we call wage slavery. When you tell people, shut up, work a full-time job, and don't make enough money to survive. Would Liz Cheney want to live like that? If she didn't have a rich daddy who, uh, you know, was a powerful man, and she was born into a family on minimum wage, would she want to live like that? Would she think it's cool? Yeah, I'll just work a full-time job and not make enough money to survive. I won't complain. I won't want to fix this system. She is such a hack. It is unbelievable. And then finally she argues, um, well, the uh, abolishing the electoral college is not something that's a good move either. So your point is the person with the most votes shouldn't win. That's your position. Now, you could dress it up. You could put lipstick on a pig, but that's your position. Oh, if you get the most votes, I don't, I don't think you should win. What? <laughs> that's, their posi- that's her position. Why? Because she knows the deal. She knows that it would hurt Republicans if you had the straight popular vote determine the winner. She doesn't care because she's playing for a team. So she, there's not a single, single principled belief in Liz Cheney's mind, not a single one. It's like, hey, listen, even if we lose more, better for the person with the most votes to win, right? Nope, that's out the window. Whatever's better for us. She wouldn't care if they got 10% of the vote but somehow won the election. She would still be like, yeah, there's no problem here at all. We won. What's the problem? There's no problem. No problem at all. So she is an utter hack. And listen, yeah, are there many people in the Republican Party who, yeah, oh, it's not about race. It's just about their ideas. Yeah, but those people are wrong. Perhaps they're not bigoted like the people who have a problem with their race, like Trump, but they're still wrong, and embarrassingly so. And I know you think you're the adult in the room that's cleaning up the mess, but you actually come across as an unhinged maniac who's strawmanning your opponent and making terrible arguments not based in reality.
Okay. CNN interviewed some uh, Trump-supporting women, and uh, this is really creepy. Stepford Wives. <clears throat> Let me set this up for you. So CNN interviewed some um, Trump-supporting women about his tweets against our great justice Democrats. And this is, I mean, this is beyond disturbing. Take a look. How many of you don't think what the president said was racist? Raise your hand. Yeah. Many Republican women from Dallas don't see anything wrong with President Trump telling four Democratic congresswomen to go back where they came from. He was saying that if they hate America so much because what we're seeing out of them and hearing out of them, they hate America. If it's so bad, there's a lot of places they can go. I'm a brown-skinned woman. I am a legal immigrant. I agree with him. Yes. Do you think that's racist to say no, that? Not at all. No. Actually, I think that's I, no. it's a demonstration of how their ideology spills over, even though they're American now, so to speak. They're not acting American. I'm glad that the president said what he said because all they're, they're doing is it, they're, they're, it's, they're inciting hatred and division, and that's not what our country's about. We, it, it's, it's not about that at all. And I don't, isn't it what the president does with some of his own comments, his own racist comments? And he didn't say anything about color. We know the president is not racist. He, he loves people from you know, Hispanics to black people all across the board. Let me just share with you the definition of racism from Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Mm-hmm. A belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. Based on that definition, do you not think what the president has been saying? No, he dated a black woman for two years. Two of his wives are immigrants. He is not a xenophobic racist. The first black billionaire is endorsing President Trump. Yeah. How can you call him racist? So these congressmen, these congressmen who said they ran for Congress, ran for office because they explicitly love this country, you're saying that's a lie. So yes, sir. Yeah. You're lie. saying they hate this country. Yes. Do you ever roughly question that? It's plainly that they're very manipulative to yeah. accuse as a, in, instead of extracting the truth. It's a tactic. Because when you say, you know, don't you think he's racist? You're accusing us. You're accusing him. I'm, I'm asking. Know. I'm not accusing. Mm-hmm. I'm asking you what but you think. But you think, oh, wait, okay. It's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the real issue. It has nothing to do with the premise of the issue. Exactly. That's and whatever. The color of the four. What do you keep bringing it up? Do you think it's just a coincidence that yes. these four congresswomen that the president is going after, none of them are white? Yes, they're going after I don't think it matters. Yeah. It's idiotic well, it's what they're saying. It's so it doesn't matter whether they're white, man, woman, brown, yellow, anything. I wish that they were the white ones that they say. Um, why are they not racist? How come they haven't befriended one of their white female congresswoman colleagues? And Correct. Like her because they themselves. won't. That's a good point. They right. don't like white people. Come on. They're racist. Yeah. How many of you still plan to vote for President Trump? Absolutely. Absolutely. Randy K. CNN. Dallas. That is genuinely unsettling to watch because it's so obvious. They're just working backwards from their conclusion, and their conclusion is, I love President Trump. He's the greatest. And then everything they say is square peg in a round hole. I don't care. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to defend him because that's what I do because I like him. Full stop. Some weird, creepy Stepford wife stuff. And they don't care how sloppy their arguments are. They have no arguments. 
Uh, I like how at the end they're just like they're decrying at the whole time they're talking they're decrying how loosely everybody throws around the term racist, and then by the end they're like they're racist. Which is it? Are you do you think people use racist too loosely, or do you think Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Ilhan Omar and the Justice Democrats are racist? Which one is it? You tell me. Because it's oh god, it's so hard to watch that. Um, Towards the end there, one of them says, no, no, it has nothing to do, this has nothing to do with race. It's just idiotic what they're saying. What are they saying? What are they saying? And then please go on to, after you tell me what they're saying, tell me what's idiotic about it. I guarantee you the woman who said that cannot tell you, number one, what they're saying. Number two, if she could tell you what they're saying, she can't tell you why it's idiotic. You want to know why? Because it's not, and they're correct. Ilhan Omar has led the way, led the way on fighting back against wars, illegal offensive wars. It's her and Ro Khanna and Tulsi Gabbard who have stuck their neck out there the most on this issue in Congress, okay? These people who voted for Trump, one of the things Trump kept saying was we need to stop the stupid wars. So Ilhan Omar comes along and fights for that thing that Trump said on the campaign trail, and they're like, idiotic. That's what it is. It's idiotic. What else are they for? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? you know, leading the way on Medicare for All, wants to stop big financial institutions from doing usury and ripping off working people. That's the first bill she came out with with Bernie Sanders was, let's limit interest rates to what is, I think, 12%, which stops basically loan sharking. So it is massively pro-worker, pro-consumer, for regular people against big financial institutions the same big financial institutions that Trump used to say, the elites are ripping you off and the forgotten man and woman will never be forgotten again under me. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comes along and does exactly that and fights for working people. And what do they say? What they're, what they're saying is idiotic. What's idiotic? What's idiotic about what they're saying and what they're doing? What's idiotic? What's idiotic? Here's the answer. Every single thing Ilhan Omar is fighting for and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is fighting for, it would help these ungrateful assholes who are attacking them on a daily basis and telling them they should go back to their country, which is America, by the way. So as they're fighting for working people across the board of all political persuasions and all backgrounds, the people on the far right are lobbing attacks at them and calling them idiots and calling them stupid and saying they're un-American and saying they hate America as those Congress people fight for the policies that would help them is really disgraceful. And it's really pathetic. But most importantly of all, it's stupid. It's really stupid. Oh, what they're saying is idiotic. You can't name a single goddamn thing that they're saying and that they're doing in terms of policy. Not a single one. And then you obviously couldn't take that next step of naming something that they're doing and then explaining why it's idiotic. Why is it idiotic to side with regular Americans against uh, big predatory financial institutions? Tell me why it's idiotic. Tell me why it's idiotic to make it so that 30 to 45,000 Americans don't die every year from lack of health care. Tell me why that's idiotic. Is it, is it intelligent to let 30 to 45,000 Americans die? Is it intelligent to have 30 to 40 million Americans without health insurance? Is that intelligent? Is that what that is? God damn it, they're so dumb. Oh, my God. Oh. One of them actually said, well, the first black billionaire endorsed Trump, so obviously he can't be racist. And then we'll wrap it up with this. They say, one of them says, 
quote, even though they're American, they're not acting American. What does it mean to act American? Let me ask you that. What does that mean? Because in the next breath, you'll talk about America. We're the land of the free. We believe in freedom. Yes, freedom. So we believe in freedom unless I think you're, quote, not acting American, in which case I'll viciously attack you. They, listen, the, the contradictions in their beliefs, it, it doesn't occur to them. The hypocrisy, the contradictions, the, um, the lack of any cogent argument, it doesn't, it doesn't land. Because they're just playing for a team and they work backwards from that. Even though they're American, they aren't acting American. And then the, the old dandy one is they, they hate America. Well, they hate America. Because they're criticizing America. Trump ran criticizing America. Saying, it's not good. It's terrible now. We have to make it great again. And they loved it. These women say the same thing. They hate it. To argue that he's not bigoted and he's not racist. When he told U.S. congresswomen to go back to their country. People at, at his rally last night just chanted about Ilhan Omar. Send her back. So they used to say, we're only against illegal immigrants. That morphed into U.S. congresswomen and American citizens. I wonder why. Part of it's the ideology, sure. But the other part of it is the skin color and the religion. To act like that plays no part in it, listen, I said it before, I'll say it again. Donald Trump has vehement disagreement with Bill Clinton. He never told Bill Clinton to go back to where he came from. He never told Bill Clinton that. Barack Obama, he, he uh, smeared as un-American. said, I think he was born in Kenya. Who knows where he's from? Produced the birth certificate, bro. Even after he produced it, he still questioned where he was from. So it's a particular kind of argument that's only reserved for people who don't look like Trump. And if you don't see that, you're being purposefully dense. All right. Let's, uh, let's move on to Kamala Harris. Okay, here we go. So Kamala Harris was asked about her support of Medicare for All, and she really stumbled here. She, this is not a good answer. Let's take a look, and then we'll discuss it. From what Vice President or former Vice President Joe Biden would suggest is that you're not necessarily being clear with the American people. And just this past week, he was asked about ending private insurance as we know it. And when he asked about the others, the former vice president responded, so far not. Because 115 million Americans are covered by private insurance. Are you, what happens to those 150 million Americans under President Harris? Well, it's the same as the millions of Americans every day that transition into Medicare as seniors. It's seamless without any difference to their coverage in terms of access to, to, to health care. 
it has to happen over a period of time. There's no question we would have to go from the current system into a Medicare for all system and transition into it. Um, but the idea that there would be any substantial difference in terms of the health care that people receive is just not accurate. So people who have private insurance would eventually have to give that up under your plan? They would eventually be covered under Medicare for All and they would still see their doctor and that's what they want. How long would this transition take? I think the transition is going to have to take, I mean, the bill is four years. I think it's going to have to take more than that, to be, to be honest with you. And all of this done without a middle class tax hike? Without a middle class tax Yes. Yeah. $30 trillion over 10 years. There are ways to pay for it, also understanding the investment that we are going to be making in a way that is going to reap great benefits in terms of other costs. The investment where? In American health and what we are otherwise paying as a cost for people not having access to health care and the burdens that places on systems across the board when people don't have access to health care. And when, you, when people question that there is no formula for this, that you are going to find money in magical ways is not realistic thinking. How do you respond to that? Status quo is not enough. Listen, when a candidate defends Medicare for all, I want nothing more than to come out here and give that candidate credit. But here's the reality. She doesn't have good answers to the questions from the reporter because she doesn't really believe in it. So when you don't really believe in it, you don't know all the details and all the ins and outs and all the solid arguments in favor of your position. So in a weird roundabout way, she weakens Medicare for all. Because even though she's arguing for it, she's not making any sense. So people who don't know much about it can watch this and go, hmm, she doesn't seem very confident in that position, and she seems like she's kind of incoherent in trying to defend it, and it makes it look bad. So... When you're asked that question, oh, no middle-class tax hikes, what you should give is the answer that I advised Bernie to give. And by the way, he started saying it, <laughs> which is kind of awesome. He, did it, he just gave a speech on Medicare for All the other day, and he used the framing that I've been talking about. And the framing is when they ask you, hey, are you going to raise middle-class taxes? You say this. No, because I'm eliminating private taxes. What are private taxes? Your premiums, your co-pays, and your deductibles to the for-profit rapacious health insurance company. So I'm eliminating that private tax and raising your public taxes, but you will net save money and everybody will be covered and it will be less expensive. That's the answer. Now what Kamala Harris does is she says, no, middle class taxes aren't gonna be raised. And then when she's asked like, okay, but then how's it funded? She's like, me, 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 me. if you give the answer I'm talking about, it's crystal clear to everybody that, well, yes, we are going to have to raise public taxes, but we're eliminating all the private taxes, so you're going to save money. So she, basically what she did there, she just said we're going to have Medicare for all, and we aren't going to have any mechanism to pay for it except something, something, the savings under the current system, which is so bad, which that, uh, that wouldn't add up. The numbers on that wouldn't add up. So she really, like, weakened her position by making a bad argument. Because she was too, she didn't want to say, her instinct is right to, to want to avoid saying the middle class is going to have their taxes raised. That instinct is correct. But you have to have a, a, a reasonable, coherent explanation as to why you're saying that. And she doesn't. Again, what my answer would be is, uh, no, middle class taxes are not going to go up. But that's because we're eliminating private taxes that you pay to your for-profit health insurance company. And we're raising public taxes. 
So uh, she does a really, really bad answer here. Now, having said that, you notice something. The only time you get real adversarial reporters is what? When they're asking questions about left-wing positions. Have you noticed that? So only when they're asking questions about free college, only when they're asking questions about eliminating student loan debt, only when they're asking questions about ending a war, only when they're asking questions about Medicare for all, do they badger the politicians. So think about that. They're adversarial in defense of the status quo. Now, if they were doing their job properly, I submit to you, they should be adversarial in service of the American people, in defense of the American people, and in defense of truth. So what they should be doing is badgering every single candidate who is not in favor of Medicare for all. But they're doing the opposite. They're badgering all the candidates who say they are in favor of Medicare for all. Which is honestly that flips journalism on its head. That flips what the media is supposed to do on its head. So from now on, I'm going to refer to corporate media as anti-media. Because that's what they are. Like real media is adversarial in defense of the people and in defense of truth. What you have here is corporate media always is adversarial in defense of the status quo. So you'll see, listen, how many tough questions have been asked about Medicare for all versus how many tough questions have been asked to Joe Biden about his shitty health care plan? The report just came out from the People's Policy Project. 125,000 Americans would die over 10 years if we did Biden care, which still leaves 3% of Americans uninsured. See how many tough questions are going to be asked to Biden about, hey, are you okay with 125,000 Americans dying because they don't have access to health care? Because that's what your plan does. It lets 125,000 people die. How many people die under Medicare for all? Again, they're only adversarial in defense of the status quo. They're adversarial against left-wing ideas. That's why they're anti-media. So Ilhan Omar is uh, using the spotlight that's currently on her to be incredibly bold and brave um, in the face of conformist opposition that's just going with the crowd. So U.S. News says the following, Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota is about to drop her own resolution that may not go over so well with Democratic leadership. Her resolution would defend the Palestinian boycott, divestment, and sanctions BDS movement against Israel. Quote, we are introducing a resolution to really... Speak about the American values that support and believe in our ability to exercise our First Amendment rights in regard to boycotting, Omar told AI Monitor, AL, AL Monitor, I don't know what that is. And it is an opportunity for us to explain why it is we support a nonviolent movement, which is the BDS movement. The Minnesota Democrat noted she intends to introduce the bill early this week. At the same time, Democratic leadership plans to advance another non-binding resolution condemning the BDS movement on Wednesday. Omar and her colleague, Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, became the first and only lawmaker to support the BDS movement after winning their elections last year. Republicans have repeatedly seized upon their pro-BDS stance to paint the Democratic Party as anti-Israel, something that was not lost on Donald Trump during his multiple Twitter tirades targeting both Congress 
Yeah, um, this is awesome because even with the firestorm surrounding her where she's like smeared nonstop as an anti-Semite, she's like, no, this is not anti-Semitic and I'm standing for something on principle. So, yeah, I'm going to – and to be clear, the resolution does not mention BDS. The resolution is about upholding Americans' right to boycott. So, basically, it is about BDS, but they don't say BDS. But it's clear what she's doing here. And she's right. And she's right. And she's one of the only ones brave enough to fight on this issue. But she's totally correct. If, I don't know if you guys have noticed this. You probably have. But it is now conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C. that uh, Ilhan Omar and even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, like, oh, they're anti-Semites. <clears throat> Notice the lack of an argument ever made. If you press them on it, they'll never go on to explain, here's why I think they're anti-Semites. Here's my reasoning. They just say it as if it's true, as if it just came to them out of the ether. Like, oh, yeah, no, anti-Semites, right. That's what they are. What? And if you do press them, what do they say? Um, APAC, BDS, and that would be an alarm, and I would be turning that off. Okay. <laughs> that was random. Um, <clears throat> so they would accuse them of anti-Semitism and have no point to make to come to that conclusion. I mean, when it came with Ilhan Omar, when they were accusing her of being anti-Semitic, what did she say? Um, the Israel lobby is paying politicians, and the politicians do their bidding. That's called true, and that's called duh. Now, it's not just the Israel lobby, but that's okay, because Ilhan Omar didn't say it was just the Israel lobby. She also called out Saudi money. Nobody accused her of being Islamophobic, because they know that's ridiculous. They know when you say, hey, Saudi money is controlling American politicians, that that's true. It's accurate. It's also true when it comes to Israel. And it's obvious. It's fucking obvious, okay? So they don't have a point, and she's standing up and fighting back against them, even at the peak of the controversy involving her. So she's using the spotlight and redirecting it and saying, yeah, I'm going to do the right thing. By the way, go ahead. Stand up and speak out against her, her um, position here. Because you know what you're doing? What you're saying is, I'm against the First Amendment if I'm against Ilhan Omar's position here. Brilliant. Brilliant strategically from her and also morally correct. And hopefully we see the beginning of a snowball effect here where many more brave left-wing justice Democrats get elected and they're willing to speak up on issues like this where we know what is true, but nobody's willing to say it. Okay. All right, let me take a final break here. And then when we come back, I got... um, New numbers out on the deficit, Mike Gravel getting screwed by the DNC, and an Alabama Republican fear-mongering about the homosexuals. So we'll come back with that and more. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere.
Okay. We're back. New numbers are out on the deficit, and uh, the White House goes into defense mode, and uh, they do a very poor job of that, to say the least. So this is a Fox Business clip that I will proceed to set up for you. Here we go. So new numbers are out, and uh, the deficit is absolutely exploding. So a Trump administration official went on Fox Business and proceeded to flat out deny reality. The White House says the annual budget deficit is set to surpass $1 trillion this year. That's actually the highest deficit we've had, excluding the four years following the Great Recession. So, Christina, in a growing economy, shouldn't the deficit be shrinking? You would think, and that's the big debate, the fact that we're talking about this $1 trillion mark uh, that would actually come at the end of fiscal year, so October 1st, and the fact that the national debt level, which is what the government owes, is at $22.5 trillion. There you go. There's that lovely clock that we have on the screen. But just over the last two years or so, we have seen an increase in spending, and it's, we can't just pinpoint it all into one administration or another because you do have baby boomers that are aging, so that's putting a burden on mandatory spending. You also have uh, bipartisan support for increase in spending on both sides when it comes to defense and domestic issues. And then this is where it can get a little bit murky, and maybe Robert can weigh in, the fact that the tax cuts, according to the Congressional Budget Office, could add $1.5 trillion to our national debt over the, the next decade or so. But overall, our economy is still growing, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the, the Democrats are always big spenders, Christina, and the Republicans yes, used to be. I don't know. Remember fiscal conservatives? What, what happened to fiscal conservatives? Nothing is the same anymore. <laughs> yeah, where where is the fiscal conservative? And, you know, the president promised he campaigned on talking about wiping out, not only just the deficit, but wiping on the debt, out the debt. Meanwhile, he's telling associates privately that the debt is not his problem. i got to say, a lot of these fiscal conservatives, I think, are complete frauds for not standing up and, and putting the same type of heat against Trump as they did against Obama when Obama wanted to spend well, uh, like mad like Jonathan, he Jonathan, we put, as someone who helped advise Trump on this, we always put growth first. That was our uh, jobs and growth were our highest priorities, as they should be. And look, I, I don't like large deficits. I don't like runaway spending. And, and it is true that we have a bipartisan spending problem. But look, when you have growth like this, you, you the, the Congressional Budget Office now is predicting that the, the economy is going to six trillion dollars over the next ten year, ten uh, six trillion dollars larger in the next ten years than they than they thought it would be, and that's in large part because of the tax cuts. So I don't buy this idea that the tax cuts have added to the deficit. But the the same people just said that there was a massive increase in the deficit. So what are you talking about? And those same people project that the deficit is going to continue to rise. I, it's unbelievable. You give them stone-cold reality, and they're like, no, no. It doesn't jive with my ideology, so no, I don't, I don't believe it. Wrong. I don't think it's true. What are you talking about? This is not anything that's open for discussion. It's math. It's not open for debate. It, it's, it is what it is. No. No, doesn't jive with my ideology, so no. Now, by the way, these are the same people who, when the Republican tax cut bill was passed, 
they said, oh, this is going to reduce the deficit. They predicted the deficit would not go up at all. That's already been proven wrong. The deficit has gone up massively. So they were just making predictions that turned out to be factually wrong. And then now they're not owning up to it. They're going, no, I don't buy it. What do you mean you don't buy it? What do you mean you don't buy it? What are you talking? That's not, it's not one of the options on the menu, dipshit. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We're literally run by children and ideologues. There's no other way to describe that. When you're willing to hold on to your ideology, even after it's been proven 100% incorrect, that leads me to believe something else is at play here. And that something else might just be that all these guys who push for trickle-down economics and push for deregulatory policies and push for tax cuts for the rich, that maybe ultimately it comes down to the fact that they're all bought. They're all corrupt. And that's really not as shocking as it might sound, because remember, Donald Trump packed his administration full of Goldman Sachs officials after he was done ripping Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail for doing Goldman Sachs fundraisers. So it's, uh, it's disturbing, because if that's true, then they really are shameless enough and soulless enough to just go out there and put on a public face and a public persona and lie about it, while also just taking the money and saying, I don't care about the consequences of this. But it really is, even for the Trump administration, it is stunning that somebody's willing to go out there and say, I don't buy the factual numbers on the deficit. It's just, it's, it's, it's insane. And these are the same, this same people that calculate the deficit now are the same people that calculated the deficit during the Obama years, and they would have no problem saying, oh, the deficit is X during Obama years. And they wouldn't question whether or not it was right or wrong. Now those same people are saying, hey, the deficit rose massively under Trump. And they're like, no, I don't like that. So I'm going to act like that's not the case. There's no way you, there's not a single argument in favor of these people being in control. You cannot look at these people and say they're adults, they're serious, they know what they're doing. That is fundamentally untrue and it's proven in the opposite direction. There's not a single shred of evidence to believe that these people are competent to be in the positions that they're in. All right, Mike Ravel. So Mike Ravel just got screwed by the DNC in a very transparent way. So Jordan says the following on Twitter here. So at Mike Gravel is getting bumped from the DNC debate because he hasn't hit the polling requirement. Instead, the DNC tapped several candidates who don't have as many individual donors. The thing is, Gravel hasn't even been offered as an option in many of the polls. Oh, boy. So do you understand what's happening here? Mike Ravel has hit the number of individual donors in order to be in the debate. But he hasn't hit the polling threshold. But the reason he hasn't hit the polling threshold is, at least in part, because he hasn't been offered as an option in enough polls. So instead, they're literally picking people who haven't hit the individual donor threshold. So this is them 
playing with the rules to get the outcome that they want to get. Color me the opposite of shocked about the DNC tweaking stuff in favor of their preferred candidates, because that is exactly what this is. Now, everybody knows I've been super critical of Mike Gravel from day one, but having said that, there's nothing to do in this situation but defend him, because he should be on the stage, especially since the more important metric he's hit, the number of individual donors, small dollar donors, that shows more grassroots support, and if he was offered as an option in more polls, he likely would have beat the people who they're letting in. So this is classic DNC fuckery. They need to switch this, and they need to switch this immediately. I don't think they will do it, but that's messed up. And listen, I do also have to point out, because it's super important, this is why, you know, they probably shouldn't have said, I'm not trying to win. Mike Gravel said originally when he launched, I'm not trying to win. The two teams that are basically running his campaign said, like, oh, yeah, we're not trying to win. Why would you do that? Because now you've given them an out for when you go to them now and say, what do you mean? We hit the number of donors that that are needed. That's going to be one of the points that they make back to you. Well, you said you weren't even trying to win, so what does it matter? We're going to give the spots to candidates who are trying to win who may not have hit the individual donor threshold but have hit the polling requirement. So, listen, that was one of the things we factored in as to whether or not to let you on the debate stage, is whether or not you're trying to actually win and you're serious about this. So I'm I'm telling you that even if somebody who's an ideological ally to Mike Gravel, like myself, had a problem with them saying, I'm not trying to win, well, then obviously people who are not ideological allies with you are going to hold that over your head in a much more nefarious way. So that was a really terrible move to say that. Um, Even if you believe that, you shouldn't have said it. But that's just um, my take on it. But anyway, it still is fucked up. They absolutely should let Mike Ravel in the debate. Um, And expect a lot more stuff like this from the DNC moving forward, because the DNC is still the DNC, and you got to keep an eye on them, and you can't trust them for a second. All right, so Jack Dorsey... is about to get a, maybe his first secular talk segment. Have I ever done a segment about Jack Dorsey before? I do not think so. So Jack Dorsey is uh, the CEO of Twitter, and he's kind of, sort of, not really, endorsed a candidate for the 2020 election, so the Hill explains. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey donated the maximum legal amount to Representative Tulsi Gabbard's 2020 presidential campaign. He gave $2,800 to the Y Democrat in June, a Federal Elections Commission filing shows. Dorsey is also the chief executive of microblogging website Square, which he listed as, at his employer, as his employer. Dorsey also contributed $1,000 to former tech executive Andrew Yang in March according to an FEC filing. A Twitter spokesman declined to comment, saying the company does not comment on uh, personal giving. The Hill has also reached out to the Gabbard campaign and Square for comment. 
Dorsey's contribution comes at a time when big tech faces scrutiny from both sides of the aisle. Candidates including Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are among those who have called for the breakup of major technology companies such as Facebook. Um, now, Tulsi is also calling for the breakup of Facebook, to be fair here. And um, I don't know if she's, I don't know if anybody's ever called for the breakup of Twitter, but Facebook, yes. Um, so this is interesting. I don't know how much a Jack Dorsey endorsement helps because nobody likes him. <laughs> and I mean that. It appears to be bipartisan. Nobody really likes him. But I do have my grand theory as to why Jack Dorsey supports the candidates he supports. And it should be pretty obvious. Most of you are probably already thinking it. Joe Rogan. So Jack Dorsey has been on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple of times. I think Jack Dorsey likes Joe Rogan, and he likes his podcast. And Joe Rogan had on Tulsi Gabbard, and Joe Rogan had on Andrew Yang, and those are the candidates that got that long-form interview, and they both came, come across very well in that format. And so Jack Dorsey probably watched both of those podcasts, and he said, I like Andrew Yang, and I like Tulsi Gabbard. So, um, I mean, I am happy that he's supporting one of them as opposed to, you know, Joe Biden or somebody like that. That would be frustrating. Um, so good for Jack Dorsey. But at the same time, again, I don't know how much this helps Tulsi or Yang because nobody likes Jack Dorsey. So it's almost one of those endorsements that if you got it, you probably would want to keep it on the low. Um, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. And I was reading some of the replies on Twitter to the article that was tweeted about this, and it wasn't pretty. There's a lot of really shitty arguments that are made against Tulsi that are just, like, unbearable. People, like... I bet Russia would like this. What the fuck? Oh, Jesus Christ. Seriously? This is, this is where you people go? Because she's not in favor of an offensive war against Syria. Therefore, she's pro-Russia or she's a Putin puppet. It's just they're not even trying with their propaganda. And the other half of the time, it's like she loves genocidal dictators. Wow. Do you really think you're making a point here? You, wait, you think she's really pro-genocide? And not that she doesn't want the U.S. doing offensive wars against countries that don't attack us. I mean, it's, it's mind-numbingly stupid, but nonetheless, this is what a lot of people are saying. But um, good for Jack for at least not picking the worst candidates. But we also do know why he's not picking Bernie Sanders. Because Bernie Sanders, <laughs> if any candidate was going to call for the breakup of even Twitter, it might be Bernie Sanders. So he might feel like, ooh, a little too far left for me and might raise my taxes a little too much. So let's not go that far. That guy's super-duper anti-establishment. So who knows? But there you have it. Jack Dorsey makes a non-endorsement endorsement. So we have um, some political candidates in the Deep South who are equal parts bigoted and hilarious. This is in Raw Story. Alabama Republican Senate candidate John Merrill this week complained that he doesn't enjoy watching television anymore due to the excess amount of homosexual activities that appear on his screen. In an interview with AL.com, Merrill said that the lack of positive moral content on television these days has led to a decline in the nation's morality. Quote, 
There's no more TV shows like Gunsmoke or Bonanza or The Virginian or I Love Lucy or Andy Griffith, he said. People are too interested in homosexual activities. They're too interested in the wife swap TV shows and the shows that are not morally uplifting. That's the problem. When asked if uh, he could cite any specific examples of, quote, homosexual activities that are clogging up Americans' TV screens, Merrill declined and simply reiterated his previous statement. I meant what I said, he told the paper. People are too interested in anything that is not uplifting, edifying. They're too busy being preoccupied with homosexual activities in the wife-swap wife shows. Merrill is one of seven candidates, including accused, including accused child molester Roy Moore, running for the Republican nomination to take on Senator Doug Jones in a key 2020 Senate race. I mean, where do you even begin with these people? You know, it is so telling that when he's asked to give a single specific example, he's like, listen, I meant what I said. <laughs> okay, so what's your example? There's a lot of gays running around, you know what I'm saying? No, we don't. Give me an example. What do you mean? There's a lot of homosexual activity on TV. He doesn't have an example. You want to know why? Because there's really not that much of that on TV. I mean, I've, my position has always been this. If you're going to complain about, I don't know, like a gay kiss or something on TV, you'll also have to complain about a straight kiss. Because you, you would have to have a principled objection to any kind of displays of affection on TV for me to take you seriously. Because if you're okay with, like, straight kissing on TV but not gay kissing, so what you're really saying is, ew, the gays are icky. But if you just are against all displays of affection like that, because you actually, I don't know, are like in a, puritanical in a way, that I can kind of, I can understand. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I understand it because at least it's like you're principled in your puritanism. And you, it's across the board. It's not just singling out gay people. When you just single out gay people, yeah, it's going to be a little bit of a problem here. So, I mean... Too many homosexual activities on TV. What are you talking about? What do, what do you pick up the remote and flip through? And What channel do you get, dog? Remember the old school Spice channel from back in the day? The youngins won't know that. But some of the older people watching this who are like my age or older, you might know what I'm talking about. The Spice channel was like, it's like you had the Playboy channel and the Spice channel. Those were the naughty channels. And like, I don't know about you guys, but we, I never had it at my house. But you would get, back in the day, you would get the staticky TV screen and you could kind of see a little bit. So you'd be watching, and, and like a minute and a half in, you'd get to see like one nipple, and you'd be like, oh, a nipple. <laughs> Is, does he have the Spice Channel, the, the LGBTQ version of the Spice Channel or something? <laughs> that doesn't exist anymore. Somebody should bring that back. I guess porn in general is not profitable anymore on TV because it's, people get it for free online. Anyway, I'm on a random side tangent here, but... Um, <laughs> To complain about homosexuals are on TV and you can't name a single example of something that's uh, inappropriate involving gay people, that says quite a bit. You know, it says to me that maybe Alabama Republican John Merrill is just really thinking about gay people quite a bit. And maybe he has certain things in his own mind that he's uncomfortable with. I mean, listen, some people get mad when you bring up this point, but it's, it's true. They've, they've studied this. And usually the people who are, like, very outwardly and vehemently anti-gay 
are the people who are repressing some that thing about themselves. So it's a it's like a mix of a very right-wing fundamentalist religious upbringing. So that makes you feel ashamed of your sexuality and then you outwardly lash out at other gay people about it because you view them as not being as morally righteous because you say, I'm repressing my feelings in that realm, so why can't you? How come you get to have all the fun and I'm over here repressing those same feelings that I have? So in other words, many anti-gay people think everybody feels those feelings of attraction to the same sex and they're the only ones who are morally righteous enough to suppress it. And that gives you a sense of why oftentimes they're really angry. <laughs> they're pent up, they're angry, and they're like, what the hell? I, I fight back against my, my urges, why can't you? And it's like, well, no, not everybody actually has those urges. And maybe there's nothing wrong with those urges, and you should acknowledge that. Okay, we got one more story here, and then we'll call it a day with our random earlier secular talk show. Don't worry, the next show we will be right back to our normal time. Um, okay, sorry. Here we go. Final story, and it involves... Um, the border crisis. So apparently some people are getting um, very, very wealthy off of the crisis at the border. Six executives for nonprofit that houses migrant children earned over $1 million in 2017. Six top-level executives at a nonprofit group that houses thousands of migrant children for the U.S. government made at least $1 million in 2017, according to tax filings obtained by the Washington Post. Juan Sanchez, founder of the Texas-based Southwest Key um, Programs, earned $3.6 million in total compensation that year. Five other employees earned seven-figure salaries, with the group's chief financial officer earning more than $2.4 million. Sanchez left Southwest Key earlier this year amid backlash to his high income, the Post reported. An employee told the newspaper that three of the other officials making at least $1 million have also left. Southwest Key reportedly shelters about 4,500 miners in Texas, California, and Arizona, a little more than a third of the 12,500 children and teens held by the Department of Health and Human Services. The nonprofit has an annual contract of about $460 million dollars and it has received more than $1 billion since 2014, according to federal records analyzed by the Post. So um, this is incredibly disturbing for multiple reasons. I mean, I had no idea that as a nonprofit you can even make this kind of money because that would seem to me like it is for profit at the people, for the people at the top. So I don't – I can't even really wrap my mind around what's going on here, but – Aside from that, we may have an answer to the question now, hey, how come this border crisis is being allowed to continue the way it's continued? Answer, it's profitable for a small number of people. Oh, no. So we're in the same boat when it comes to the border crisis as we are when it comes to Wall Street, as we are when it comes to endless war. 
So there's the military-industrial complex, which makes war very profitable, so we keep doing endless war. And apparently there's the border-industrial complex, where you have a small number of people getting very wealthy off of this border crisis. So they have an incentive to want to keep asses in, I would say beds, but a lot of these places don't have beds and it's concrete floors. They want to keep asses on the concrete floors because apparently that allows them to get bigger and bigger contracts and allows them to run out the back door with millions and millions of dollars. So like almost everything we talk about on this show, it appears like this has been tainted with corruption. Now, we already knew that like private prisons, for example, were massively profiting off of this. And in fact, they were literally using slave labor. There's a, a lawsuit against the private prison facilities for using slave labor of undocumented immigrants. Well, now we know it's not even just the for-profit companies. It's the non-profit companies, too. So you wonder why nothing changes. You wonder why nothing gets fixed. You wonder why we don't have a system that treats people with human dignity and is smooth and functions properly. It's because people are getting rich off of the current system. So why do they want to change it? I mean, this is absolutely insane, man. I mean, it's devastating. It really, when you see something like this, it really reminds you that maybe this dynamic is what's at play in, like, everything. Everything functions like this when it gets to a big enough level, whether it's giant corporations or, or you know, similar bureaucracy. This is what ends up happening. So it's almost like... How can we expect this problem to be fixed when the problem is the solution to these people? To them, there is no problem. This is the, the solution is what's happening because I don't care that people are living in degradation. I don't care that people are not being treated with human decency. I don't care that people are dying because they can't get medicine. I'm making money. So, yeah, go ahead. More migrants flow into the country. Keep them locked up. Um, get bigger contracts. We'll make more money. We'll run out the back door. We won't make the conditions any better or the process any more reasonable and streamlined. Wow, this is absolutely devastating, and it's incredibly scary, and it's really a stark reminder how things seem to be broken across the board, and it requires something of a political revolution to fix it. I wonder where we can find one of those. Okay. All right, y'all. We are done skis with the show. Now, again, today it was a one-time early show. I got some stuff I got to take care of, but the show will be back to its normal time for the next show. So, anyway, love you guys, and I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day and your weekend. Peace.